What's up, you sexy listeners? It's your boy, Five Star, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. I know life's crazy right now, and I hope you're doing amazing, and I'm doing my best to help you. And right now, I'm bringing on Aswath Damadoran, who is an NYU pricing and valuation professor. I am a disciple and convert of every single thing he's been putting out, especially if you're curious about the economy and the future. This is your episode. Here's four crazy, amazing things that I learned, plus a bunch more in here. Number one, show him your portfolio, and he can tell you a lot about yourself. There is that, plus... How much you trade a day is more likely to make someone rich or poor? You'll find out in the episode. Number two, which industries and companies are going to fail and thrive? We go really, really specific. Number three, the sleep test, which I've never heard about for how to invest. And four, there's some bonus stuff on how to teach and learn. You're going to enjoy this episode a lot, especially if you're interested in the economy and the future with finances. This is your episode. Quick plug for sendfox.com. If you're on MailChimp, ConvertKit, or you're a podcaster, influencer, YouTuber, and you don't want to be spending a monthly subscription, go check out sendfox.com. We built it for ourselves. It's affordable email marketing, super, super simple, sendfox.com. And also, if you're running a business or you want to start a business, I've been putting out a lot of YouTube content called Recession Proof, and I hope it helps you improve yourself during this wild time. And a big shout out to my boy, Thomaston33 from Australia. Hey, mate. He said this is the best business advice he's heard. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. If you want a future shout out, just leave an iTunes review or leave a review anywhere. I check every single one of them. The stuff you are putting out is insane. It is unbelievable. I love reading about it, and I've been sending it to everyone. Your insights to everything going on from a very analytical perspective, I just got to share it with the world. So that is why we're here. Why do you want to have an internet presence as an NYU professor? I actually started putting my classes online in 1992. Well before there was an internet or online classes, I'm a teacher. I want the biggest audience I can get. I mean, if I teach to 200 people and he can teach to 20,000 people. So to me, I mean, when people ask, why do you do this? I tell them, why did Jehovah's Witnesses hand out Bibles? I mean, they don't do it, obviously, for the money. They do it because they're selling salvation. I'm not quite selling salvation, but I'm selling a, a message. And the more people I can reach, the happier I get. How did you get that insight in 92 to, to put your classes online? Oh, it's not the inside. It's the first time I was able to put If I was able to do it right from the start of my teaching life, I'd have done it from 84. 92 was actually the first time. Actually, what I used to do is actually have one of those old VCR uh, recorders in my classroom, recorded on a videotape, and actually try to convert the videotape into an online video, which in those days was horrendously difficult to do. So I've always wanted to reach the biggest audience. What technology has given me is a platform to be able to do that at relatively low cost. So how does a professor of finance think about marketing? How do you think about marketing yourself? I'm marketing a message. I don't care. I mean, in a sense, I really don't care if people never recognize my name as long as they get the message of, hey, you know, there's a way in which you can start to make sense of things around. That's message. I mean, every tool I offer is, hey, this is not my answer. This is my way of reasoning to the answer. Now, you take the tool and reason your way to your own answer, because we live in a world where I call this the Google search world. When you want an answer, what do you do? You go on Google search and you look for the answer. We've lost the capacity to reason our way to an answer. And I think that's too bad, because I think the way we learn things and the way they stick is for us to reason our way to an answer. So the way I've always felt about whatever I write and teach is, I don't have the answer, but I'll tell you how I came to my answer. Now, you take my platform, the tools, and I'll give you some tools, and you come to your own answers, and they don't have to match mine. In fact, I don't want them to match mine, because it would be a very boring world if we all agreed that what I thought was the right thing to think. I hope my kids all take your classes, because I feel like you're the cool, strict teacher. 
well, I don't know about cool, and I don't know about strict, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I'm teaching, it's a passion, it's not a job. So it's what I do. I tell people, look, finance is not my first calling. Teaching is my first calling. If I wasn't teaching finance, I'd be teaching math, or I'd be teaching second grade algebra. I mean, I would do anything to teach. Now, that's my first and biggest passion. Everything else is secondary. How did you know that? How did you figure that that was your thing? I tell people it was, it was pure chance. I was actually an MBA at UCLA in 1981, and I was a TA for an accounting class. And I did it because I needed the money. And I walked into that class. I didn't even like accounting that much. But about 15 minutes into my very first session, I knew that this was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I call these moments of grace, which is, you know, there are times when you know you're doing something. So this is what I was meant to do. I was listening. Thank God for that. And it changed the course of my life because I went to the head of the finance department and said, do you know what? I'd like to be a teacher. And he said, to teach at a university, you need a PhD. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So it was just 15 minutes of pure chance where I happened to have an open mind. And I tell my kids that keep your keep your message lines open because you're getting messages all the time. And if you're willing to listen, you know, it could change your life. Wow. So one thing that I've been fascinated with, and I haven't actually found a good resource for it, is how to teach. There's actually so many books now. I've been looking for content online, offline, wherever I can find how to get messages across more effectively. What do you, can you walk us through? I'll send you a link to a YouTube video. I do a session on, on teaching. And I'll describe the word I use for it. It's a craft. It's not an art. It's not a science. It's a craft. And what I mean by that is you learn by doing. And if you're willing to say, look, I don't have this nailed down and you keep working at the, it's like cooking. The first time you cook, it's a disaster, right? But as you keep cooking and you learn that you can be creative, you can add things together, you learn to get better at it. Teaching is the same way. When you first start teaching, it's like, I don't know what to do. But if you're willing to keep learning and you're willing to, and you're willing to abandon things that don't work and add in things that do, you will get, anybody can be a good teacher. I mean, to be a great teacher, you might need some magic in there, right? Which might not, but to be a really good teacher, anybody can be a teacher. So I'll send you that link because it basically goes to the craft part. It essentially is a summary of all the things I've learned in 35 years of teaching. And I use one class to illustrate, this is why I do things the way I do. It should be a Baruch College presentation that's on YouTube, the Modern Teaching, Art or Science, Baruch College. It should be there somewhere. Is there anything specifically you found? I was watching my friend teach his girlfriend how to do skiing. Yeah. His name is Neville, and he was actually a phenomenal teacher. Because, like, you know, my girlfriend, my fiance was, was learning, and I was like, get off your ass. Just get going. You just go down. Just go down. You'll be fine. Just stop at the bottom. Neville was like, all right, we're going to turn your skis 1%. Okay, now that it's 1%, how do you feel? You're doing great. Positive reinforcement little bit of clarity. All right, you're going to turn a little bit more. It might, and, and so he just had a lot of different steps and reinforcements and smaller things. So is there anything that, that stuck out to you over the years or maybe more recently? Well, I'll give you the three words that I used to describe with teachers. One is energy. The way I describe this is when you teach a class, you need a critical mass of energy in that room, which means if your students supply the energy, you have less work to do. So I love teaching classes at in the middle of the day as opposed to 8 a.m. 8 a.m., everybody's sleeping, which means you've got to come up with enough energy to make up for the room. The second is empathy, and which is what I think your friend has. Empathy, which is you have to think like a beginner. You're looking down that slope. What do you see? You see scary things. I mean, I constantly put myself back in the shoes of what it felt like to be a student. It was a long, long time ago, but I remember the things that used to piss me off, and I try not to do them. 
For instance, I've never taken more than 24 hours to return an exam. I have classes of 300, so it's a lot of work, the days I give quizzes and exams to grade them. But I remember taking an exam when I was a student and not getting my exam back for weeks. And by the time you got it back, you didn't even know what the exam was about. You completely lost interest. I try not to do the things that made me pissed off as a student. So empathy basically means you've got to think like somebody who's never taken a finance class, who's probably never even worked with numbers. Many of my MBAs are museum directors, literature majors. They've never looked at numbers. They come into the class. They're terrified of what's coming. And I have to put myself in that mindset and say, how would it feel if I came and hit you with buzzwords and I showed you a balance sheet? The thing is, it's scary. So at the same time, I also have to think about the people who really know the stuff. So I've got to frame it in such a way that I'm not doing it as baby steps. So I've got to be kind of to meet both requirements. I've got to provide the information in a way that people who've never seen it before are okay with it. And people who've seen it before get a new twist on the way they look at things. So it's an interesting challenge because it's a challenge that I haven't fully solved because there are some topics I wish I could teach better. But you know what? The day I stop thinking that, I'll stop teaching because if you think you've got the whole thing nailed, you're done. So you were saying the empathy, energy, and what was the third one? Enthusiasm. Hey, if you want to teach somebody skiing, you better convey why you love skiing. So much fun. Yeah, it's because otherwise, why would I want to learn skiing if you don't like skiing? So it's the same thing with I, I've sat in on people teaching a class and the person teaching the class so obviously hates their entire subject. <laughs> And then they say, well, why is nobody getting it? It's because you're conveying how much disdain you have for your own subject. Why would people get excited? You're not excited about what you're teaching. Why would other people get excited about the same thing? Maybe on the flip side of that is that how do you become a good student? Yeah, you have to be excited and enthusiastic about what you want to learn. Because if you don't really care about a subject, you're going to, you can be a good student in terms of getting a grade. But the material you're learning will not stick. So you've got to first you know, have an interest in the topic. And in fact, I think that's part of my job as a teacher, is to kind of tell people why what they're learning matters. And I wrote a piece for a teaching journal once. They said, would you write a you know, short piece about teaching? And I, the title of my piece was, will this be on the midterm? And basically, it's a question you often get when you're teaching something and a student says, will this be on the exam? You know, the subtext of that question is, right? If it's not going to be the exam, I really don't care about this stuff. This is so boring. When teachers often hear that, they get pissed off because they say, look, I'm teaching you these profound things and you want to know whether it's going to be in the exam. And I tell people, look, you know, don't get pissed off at the student. If they're asking you, will this be in the exam? You haven't done your job as a teacher because the first thing I need to do when I introduce a topic is explain why it should matter to my student, why they should care beyond just it's going to be on the exam. So I think for to be a good student, that has to connect. You have to understand that what you're learning is not just for an exam. It's not just to get through a grade. It's to actually apply for the rest of your life. And that's what I look for. Whatever class you're taking, you want to think about, hey, what? how will what I learn affect the rest of my life? How will it change? When you take that statistics class while you're bored out of your wits, ask yourself, where would this help me? You know what? Statistics is an incredibly powerful skill set to have. Think of all the numbers coming at you right in this crisis, right? Now, what percentage of people get COVID? What percentage of those? I mean, this is all statistics. And if you don't know statistics, you're sitting there saying, what the heck is going on? It adds to the fear factor. So I think that ultimately to be a good student, you need to be interested in the subject and think it matters to you beyond just this classroom. 
Well, it's funny. One of the things you posted recently, and it was about a flow chart, and it was like, here's how to make decisions during this, you know, different scenarios. And someone was like, just tell me the answer. I was looking for the answer too, but I, I think you're actually right. The next step of that is here's how to even think about it so you don't need me. And I think that's part of the reason. I, I also, in that same post, I said, best thing that CNBC can do right now is send all their anchors and their experts home and just have a blank screen with the market moving up and down. Because let's face it, much of what you hear from the experts right now, they have no idea what's going on, but they have to say, act like they do. And in the process, I think they sometimes create more damage than help. So sometimes less is more. And in times like this, taking a pause and saying, look, I don't know the answer. And that is really the truth that most of us should face. In fact, I don't think there's a single person out there who can tell you. This morning, I was actually working with my classes, and they all have to value companies. And they're all facing this quandary. Well, so, you know, one of them is valuing Boeing. And he says, how do I come up with the revenue growth rate or how much the revenues will drop this year? So I asked him a question. I think Boeing knows what's going to happen this year. And he said, probably not. And I said, if they don't know, what makes you think, sitting in front of a spreadsheet, that there is some answer out there? He said, I was looking everywhere for an answer. I said, nobody has an answer. Take what you know about Boeing and try to figure out what you would do right now. Make your best estimate and accept the fact that you might have to revisit it two weeks from now because everything's shifting. Let's shift a little bit more into that. One thing I want to commend you on, and this is something, it's honestly just a reminder for myself as much as for the audience, is that you have been with this YouTube content and your teaching since the 90s. Do you know how many videos you've actually put out on YouTube? No idea. Well, I just want people, if you get a chance, go subscribe to him on YouTube, go follow him. And how do I pronounce your name correctly, by the way? Aswat the Modarin. Aswat the Modarin? Yeah. And I'm going to email and promote it, but I'll follow on Twitter. But your YouTube, I think the thing that is amazing, and we'll get into the specific finance stuff that I have no idea what any of it means, but it sounds really cool. And I think it's really powerful is you've been doing this five years and you've been putting out videos very consistently. And I'm always very, I always admire that. And I respect that. And, and I aspire to be as consistent in that because I think we, we do a video or we start a business or we do something and, and we're not rich instantly. You've been doing it since the nineties and now, you know, the video, YouTube thing specifically for five years. The advantage I have is I am lucky enough that I don't need to make money on my on my teaching or my videos. I make enough to maybe not get everything I want, who does, but everything I need, I, I have enough for that. So there's no mechanism where I say, oh, it's not working. I don't even know how I would say it's not working because I tell people, look, I write to get clarity, not to give clarity, but to get clarity. Because when I'm confused, I have to put things down on paper. I have to write. And then when I talk about what I've written, and every time I write something, I do a YouTube video because it forces me to talk about what I've just written. And I realize as I'm talking, hey, that doesn't make sense. Maybe I should think differently about this. So people think I do it for others, but I do it for myself. This is actually a kind of a Kim Kardashian version of finance, which is I don't do it for the rest of the world. I just do it for me. This happens to be filmed as I'm doing it. And if it kind of helps other people, that's great. If people say nobody's reading your posts or watching your YouTube videos, why do you keep doing it? Because it makes me feel that I'm more in control, that I'm, I'm more comfortable after I write something or post about it. The first question that comes to mind with, with all the finance piece, I don't know if this is just what everyone thinks, and I'm sure this is the question you get often, is like, why not just go and get super rich? I think it depends on what the end, what your end game in life is. I mean, if you define your end game of, I want to make the most money I can over my lifetime, clearly I haven't made the right choices along the way. I could go work for a hedge fund. You know what? I could probably make a lot more money. But the reality is that at the end of the day, you've got 
you know, you measure your life. Who who measures their life by saying, this is how much money I made? Maybe some people do. But for me, that seems to miss the essence of life. I guess, how would you measure it? Or how are you measuring it? I measure it in terms of how many people's thinking I've changed. As a teacher, that's how you measure life. You measure life of how many people have I touched? How many people's thinking have I changed? And how many lives have I altered? I'll give you one of my favorite conversations. It was actually about uh, four years ago, I was in Canada because I teach all around the world. I was not obviously in the last few weeks, but around the world. So I was giving evaluation session in Canada. At the end of my session, one of the people in the audience comes up to me and he says, you don't know me, but I'm a student from Iran who's now in Canada and I'm doing my PhD. But 15 years ago, when I was in Iran and I was, you know, trying to decide what to do with my life, I heard one of your sessions. And that time you almost had to pirate these sessions in Iran. And he said it changed the way I thought about things and it changed what I did for the rest of my life. And so he said, thank you. And I said, you know, that's, that is worth more to me than a $15 million bonus I could get from a hedge fund because I made them more than a billion dollars more money. So I think if you measure your life in terms of changing other people's thinking and life, then I've had a very rich life. I can't complain at all. That's awesome. Are your MBA students panicked? They're scared. Panicked, I think, is the wrong word. Some of them were stuck in New York physically worried because New York is the epicenter for this whole thing now. But I don't think they're panicked. I think they're scared. And I think, I mean, remember, almost two thirds of my students are international. So they're back in China, they're back in India, they're back in Europe, they're back in Spain, they're back in Brazil. So I'm actually getting a sense, because I do Zoom sessions Monday and Wednesday with them, I'm teaching my regular class, I'm getting global feedback on what it feels like to be on the ground in another country. So parts of the world which are less affected, still people are less worried. I think right now if there's panic, it's more physical panic rather than financial panic. The financial panic will come when they say, maybe this will affect the job I can get. And many of them have jobs already lined up, my second year MBA class. And some of them are going to start to worry about what if that job offer gets retracted. That's the next step in this. You're going to have People who thought they had jobs going into this crisis, coming out of the crisis without a job. You know what? I've lived through that before because I was teaching in the fall of 2008 when that crisis hit, and it upended the lives of all of my second-year MBAs for that year. So there's a lot of you know, financial trauma coming, and um, I don't think they've had time to think about it yet. I think it will hit them more as the weeks go on, will actually hit them when they get that call or email from their potential employer saying, remember that job we promised you? It's not there anymore. And I feel badly for those people. I have a feeling that come late April or May, we're going to be scrambling to try to find places for people. And where are you going to find places where you know fewer people are hiring? So how quickly we come out of this and how completely we recover will determine how long that panic will last. So let's go to the question of the hour. What are you making sense of everything from a financial perspective? Well, in a sense, this is an experiment that the world has never run. What we've done is we brought the entire global economy to a complete standstill for, let's say, 12 weeks. If you bring the entire global economy to a standstill for 12 weeks and you try to restart it, it's like a motor that's been running for as long as people have been around. There's never been a time in history where the entire global economy has shut down. So even after 2008, that was mostly U.S. and Europe. The rest of the world was actually relatively unaffected. This is the first experiment in history where the entire global economy has been shut down. And you know what? We don't know how quickly it can get restarted. It's like this really old engine. Nobody's ever started it before. And you're saying, 
we don't know whether it will crack back to life immediately. I mean, that could be, in fact, a solution. And that's why people are watching China so carefully is because China is almost four weeks ahead of the curve because or six weeks ahead of the curve because they got it earlier and they're starting to come out of it earlier. So people are seeing how quickly China cranks up. And if China starts to crank up quickly, that's a good signal for the rest of the world that this is something we can restart and it's going to be okay. But when you try to restart it, the engine dies and it keeps dying, then you know that this is going to be much longer term. And that's so that's what you're watching for, is those little shoots of green coming out and saying, hey, you know, how will this restart itself? Because we've never done this before in history. That's why I said any expert who claims that they've seen this before is lying. This is unlike anything I've seen before. And I think we should accept that it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. For all we know, it's a good thing that this is something we can come out of faster than the 2008 crisis, which damaged banks. Banks are an integral part of the economy. So when they're damaged, it lasts much longer. It's an experiment. And the outcome of that experiment is going to affect all of us. And so what observations have you made? I noticed you've, you've done a lot of analysis around debt analysis. I think the key is this in any crisis, liquidity is key which is the companies that have very little debt and lots of cash are not just going to survive this crisis, they're going to come out of it stronger. I mean, if you're afraid of the FANG stocks and Microsoft, or you know, you know the FANG stocks, Facebook, Alphabet, if you were afraid of them before the crisis, you should be terrified after the crisis. Because if you thought they were powerful before, think of how much more powerful they're going to be coming out of this, because the competition is going to be wiped out. Bed, bath, and beyond and Best Buy are going to have a really tough time making it through the crisis. Amazon is going to have no trouble at all. So at the end of the crisis, Amazon is going to be even more powerful than it was in all of the businesses it's in. Crisis creates opportunities and threats. So threats are to smaller companies, companies which have a lot of debt, companies that don't have much cash. The opportunities for companies which have very little debt, lots of cash. I mean, Apple has enough cash that it doesn't have to sell a single iPhone for the next 16 months. It doesn't have to sell a single product. There is enough cash that it can just ride out to the next 16 months paying everybody their regular wages. That's amazing. I mean, so it basically means that when you think about safety and you think about companies coming out of this, one of the ways you can say, look, you know, I want to go with safety is to go with those companies that have less debt big companies with lots of cash and say they're going to ride the storm and come out on the other side and they're going to be more powerful as a result of the shakeout. What other insights or observations have you noticed in your analysis? I think the other thing is you look across regions, across there's no safe place because I know that, you know, when you talk to people, so, you know, especially if you have older relatives with all they say, where can I put my money where it'll be safe? And I've got to give them an answer that they don't like, which is there's no safety in a market like this. There's no place to hide. It used to be that if you had a crisis in one market, you could go hide in another market. If you didn't like stocks, you could buy gold or physical assets. You know, welcome to globalization and welcome to a market where everything is connected to everything else at the hip. There's no place to hide. And that scares people. Is there anything that you think people are missing? I think right now in the crisis, what they're missing is perspective, which is when you're in the middle of a crisis, all you can think about is the crisis. I know it takes a lot of doing. I told my students this this morning, none of them is going to listen. I said, rather than get focused on what's going to happen for the rest of the year, start with the presumption that the rest of the year is going to be crappy for most companies. Revenues are going to drop. You're going to lose money. You're going to have a tough time raising capital. Accept that as a premise. But then ask yourself, 
let's say you're two years down the, you know, looking at this in 2022, what will the landscape look like? And they said, well, that's going to be really t- difficult to do. I said, I agree. It's going to be really difficult to do, but you almost have to look past the pain and ask yourself, what will the world look like? And think about who are the winners and who are the losers? Let's take a simple example. We're all getting more comfortable being online these last few weeks, partly because you have no choice, right? There are people who've never taken an online class or listened, sat in on an online meeting who are doing it right now. And they're discovering that technology is actually pretty neat, that you can do things that you did not think you could do. You know what? Two years out, I'm looking at the world. There might be a lot less business travel than we had pre-crisis. Why would you put somebody on a flight to London, pay business class fares, $7,000 for a one-hour meeting where the guy's jet lagged and completely out of his you know, mind, when you can let him sit at home and sit in on a Zoom meeting or a, a Cisco WebEx meeting or a Microsoft Team meeting? So that's just a small microcosm of the kind of behavioral change that's going to come out of this. I think, for instance, this is going to give a boost to delivery services. Uber Eats um, and Amazon Fresh were, you know, were doing well before this. I think they're going to do even better after this because there are going to be people who say, this is neat that I don't have to go to the grocery store, that I just fix things on my phone and it gets delivered outside. I mean, so again, that's another behavioral change that might come out of this that's going to define winners and losers. So I tell people, look at what you're doing and look at what kind of long-standing changes there will be in your behavior because of what you're doing. And that's going to affect which companies win, which companies lose, and which companies are not going to make it through this crisis. For instance, I don't think cruise lines are ever coming back. I'll be quite honest. I think the reason is, I mean, what have we seen in this crisis? We've seen that a big cruise ship is a petri dish. And we've always known this with Legionnaire's disease and other stuff. But this is kind of brought it home in front page news, right? So if you're Royal Caribbean and say, when are people going to come back? I don't think they're going to come back in any numbers that can keep you going as a business. So if I'm thinking about companies that are coming back, cruise lines are not up there. It's not a question of bouncing back to where you used to be because what will be is not going to be where you used to be. In contrast, let you think about the airlines and Boeing. I think it's a more... It's a more nuanced story. Are people still going to be flying two years from now, three years from now, five years from now? Of course. Do we need airlines to do it? Yes. There's no new airline that's going to get started from scratch in this market. So the existing airlines are going to be the ones out there. A subset of them might go out of business. For instance, Spirit will have a much tougher time making it through the crisis than United or American, simply because it's much smaller, much more regional, much less cushioned. So we know that airlines are going to survive. So if you're investing in airlines, you want to pick the ones that are most likely to come out of this and not run, not have to give up all their equity to the government in return for a bailout. So I'd pick Southwest over United, Ryanair over Lufthansa. Why? Because Ryanair is a lot less debt. It's much less to worry about making it through. Why Southwest? Because Southwest historically, their entire business model is built on scaling up and scaling down quickly, which means they don't have these cost structures they get locked into no matter what. That's the problem with an airline, right? You have all these costs that stay even if nobody flies the airline. Southwest has historically had a business model where they've spent a lot less. I'll give you one very simple example. You fly Southwest. Most cities, you often fly into no-name airports. It's become better, but it used to be that 
in New York, they didn't fly into Newark, JFK, or LaGuardia. They flew into Iceland. In LA, they flew into Orange County. You know why they did that? Because when you fly into a major airport, you got to pay for the gates, a fixed cost, that Newark or JFK gate. And it's very expensive. And you got to pay for those gates whether one flight leaves out of them or 15 flights to. Early on, Southwest said, we're not going to lock ourselves into a business model where you have hundreds of millions of dollars of costs, even if we're never flying. So that's why in 2001, after 9-11, if you remember for that entire last quarter of, nine, of 2001, flying came to a standstill because people in the U.S. were terrified, right? They didn't want to get on a plane. Southwest was the only airline that continued to make money even in that terrible quarter because they managed to bring their costs down. Every other airline was on the verge of bankruptcy, just like they are today. I mean, I described airlines as being manic depressive. They never have a normal year. They're either making billions or they're going bankrupt. Southwest has managed to get enough, I don't know what the medication is for manic depression, but basically enough medication that their mood swings are not as wide. So you're looking for companies which have less mood swings. And the fixed cost structure is basically what drives those mood swings is if you have lots of fixed costs, this is going to be a really tough period to get through. If you can bring your cost structure down quickly, then you're going to be able to manage. And then once the worst is over, you're going to be able to come back up. But survival is key. For the next six months, any management asks, what should we be doing? Survive first, and then we'll talk about what you can do afterwards. Because if you don't make it, everything else is, you know, who cares? Can we do a few more industries and sectors? Then? Banks. Many of these sectors that are in serious trouble now are already nudging their way into trouble. Banks are still recovering from the hit that they got in 2008. And the hit both affected them financially, and it also affected how much people trust banks. Let's face it, post-2008, most people lost trust in banks. In fact, I have a paper in Valley Banks called Breach of Trust, where essentially it said, people don't trust you. They're not going to put a high value on you because they say, look, I buy JP Morgan, and I think I've got a good investment. And two months later, I wake up, and they have a $6 billion loss that came because some crazy guy traded something in London. I don't want to deal with that. So banks were already in trouble because people had lost trust in them, and fintech was eating their easiest money. Let me explain. When I moved to the West Coast two and a half years ago, I had to move money from an East Coast bank. I was a TD bank, and there are no TD banks in California, to West Coast bank, JP Morgan. So I just had to move my money from my own account to my own account. I mean, in today's day and age, that should be costless and effortless, right? You just wire the money. But for that privilege, you know what JP Morgan charged me for a bank wire in the U.S.? They charged me $40. And my reaction was, hey, if I get a chance, I'm leaving you guys in the dust. The reason they could do this, because historically, their reaction was, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Take your money out in cash and carry it across the country? We're going to charge you $40 because we can. What FinTech is doing is it's going after those soft businesses. It's going after businesses where banks are charging you absurd amounts of money for doing pretty much nothing. And they're saying, we can do it for pretty much nothing. And the problem that banks were having even before this crisis, the easy ways to make money, the bank wire was a complete slam dunk for them. They had no cost. They could make $40 a wire. You multiply that by the number of wires every day. That's a huge amount of free cash. So what the fintech business was doing was taking away the easy ways of making money, which leaves banks in the worst possible business, which is what? Loading to companies and worrying about default risk and making sure they get enough of an interest rate to cover expenses much more difficult. What this crisis has done is hit them in two ways. One is the companies that they've lent money to are in real trouble. You can dress this up as much as you want, 
But if you're a bank, your assets are all what people owe you, right? If you think about it, that's what their assets are. And those assets now, overnight, over six weeks, have probably dropped in value 25%. It's like waking up in a house that has dropped in price 25%. You still owe the same amount of money. Banks still have those deposits, which are still there. So the reason banks are feeling the pain is when you have default on the part of companies, banks are the first line where you feel the pain. And not surprisingly, as real estate melts down, as oil melts down, basically all the sectors, we have a lot of debt, you worry about companies going bankrupt, banks are melting down with real estate. This is just so insightful. I think a lot of people hear opinions, but you're doing research based on real data that I found phenomenally believable. Yeah, real estate has always been a boom or bust business. I tell people a real estate developer has been bankrupt and a millionaire multiple times in his life. You can put a high-profile real estate developer in there. Now You can put any name you want. Over the course of his or her lifetime, that real estate developer has been bankrupt because you borrow so much of the money for real estate. It's the nature of the business. The one thing about real estate is real estate developers are not faced by going bankrupt because they've done this so many times before. <laughs> and like most CEOs and CFOs are freaked out. Oh my God, I'm going bankrupt. Real estate developers in this too shall pass. We live through this. Are you seeing a longer term pullback in real estate? Because I guess my observations is that, you know, I still have been wanting to buy a house, but now I'm uncertain. So I still will buy it, but I'm willing to spend a lot less. You know what? I think it, there will be a pullback and it's a healthy thing because, uh, I look at the part of the world that I live in, which is San Diego, and I ask myself, can my daughter afford a house in the city? And she's a school teacher. And the answer is no. And I think in much of the world, this has been true. Real estate has been pushed to levels where people can't afford the real estate based on the income they have. The only reason they buy a house is often they think they can sell it to somebody else at a higher price. And I think what you will discover in this crisis is that um, there will be an adjustment in prices, more so in parts of the country where real estate is really zoomed up, like the Bay Area. I think there's going to be a significant markdown in real estate. And thank God for that. Guys, let's face it. I mean, the re- if you try to buy a house in the Bay Area, you could buy a garage for a million dollars. And so sometimes we look at market corrections and we see the pain. But market corrections are the economy's way of dealing with excess, right? And we've had a lot of excess in a lot of different parts of this economy that are going to get cleaned up. It's painful. I'm not, I don't feel any joy at seeing venture capitalists being brought down to earth or Silicon Valley being brought down to earth because there are real people, real lives, real families involved. But if you didn't have these corrections, you're essentially going to be pushing things beyond the reach of most human beings' capacity to earn money. So there's going to be a correction in real estate more in some parts of the country than others. You know, I think you know, California is a classic example where you're going to see a correction. But you know what? They should be used to it. In 2009, you saw 50% markdown in housing prices in California after that crisis. So, you know, it's going to happen. And if you're, so if you're thinking about buying a house, then I think you're going to be in better shape a year from now, assuming you hold on to your job while you do this. If you think about selling a house, it's probably going to be a tough time because I know that our neighbors across the street listed their house eight weeks ago. And the open house happened actually the week before the crisis hit, the first open house. It's still on the market. The price hasn't changed, at least on the listing. There's no way they're getting that price. They have the luxury of pulling the house off the market. But let's say they've bought another house. Oh, wow. You're really going to be in trouble. So there are people who are going to be caught in this transition because it happens so quickly. 
What are you doing with your finances? I have liquidity, so I have that advantage. So I have liquidity. And for me, the thing is, should I hold on and keep the liquidity or stop? And for the first three weeks, I just held on to the liquidity. Why? Because I, you know, it's a very simple test when it comes to investing. It's called the sleep test. And here's how the sleep test works. If you're lying awake at night wondering what's happening to your portfolio, you fail the sleep test. And for me, having the liquidity allowed me to sleep through those first three weeks. So I said, I'm passing the sleep test. I might think something is cheap and I want to buy it, but I'm going to hold off until I feel comfortable enough to do it. I think early last week, I've started passing the sleep test to the point where I said, you know what? I feel comfortable enough taking my liquidity and starting to do something with it. So starting, I think, midweek last week, I think Wednesday, I've been, I don't go crazy. I don't buy 50 stocks. I'm not a portfolio manager, but I have a list of companies. And in fact, in my very last post, I gave you the four groups of companies where I'm looking at. One is what I call bargain basement. These are the companies where the price has been marked down, but there's no risk of failure. So the Expedia's of the world, you know, companies that were money-making, that don't have a lot of debt, that you know are going to come back. Let's face it, two years from now, you want to get online, you want to make a reservation. You still need an Expedia or a booking. They're not going out of business. So companies like those. I think oil, and this is something I wanted to talk about earlier, there's no way $24 a barrel oil prices are sustainable in the long term because there's only one company in the world that can make money at a $24 oil price, one oil company, and that's Aramco. Why? Because Saudi Arabia, you stick your finger in the sand, oil comes out. Everywhere else in the world, you've got to work so hard that at $24, your costs are higher than the price, which means this can't be steady state. Because Aramco alone can't produce 33 million barrels of oil because they don't want to. They have only 330 million barrels under the sand, and they want to spread it out over time because it's their only cash flow. So we know oil prices are going to go back up. Whether they go back to 35, 40, 45, or 50, we can debate. So what I'm looking for are oil companies that can survive. So I buy ExxonMobil. I look at Conoco. These are oil companies that you know are going to be around when the oil prices go back up. I'm not picking up, you know, Occidental. Occidental, the problem is it's an oil company, but unlike ExxonMobil or Conoco, it has a lot more debt. I worry about it not making it. Because what if I'm right about oil prices coming back, but the oil company I've invested in goes bankrupt next week? Now, what do I have to say? I can boast about the fact that I would have made money if my company survived, but that's not going to bring me my money. So the first time I'm bargain basement companies, these are companies that have been marked down in sectors where the sector deserve to be marked down, travel companies, oil companies, airlines. But then I'm looking for companies with the characteristics needed to survive, Southwest, Conoco, Expedia. The second group of companies, I call my risky bet companies. These are companies that are basically you're making, you know, it's like gambling. In investing, there are investments called 10 baggers. These are investments where you invest $10 and they climb to $100. Everybody dreams of making a thousand percent return. You know what? The second group of the companies are the ones where you're most likely to see that, but it's boom or bust. You're either going to lose everything or you're going to make 10 times your money. So here's where you put the United Airlines, the Spirit Airways, the Occidentals of the world. Is These are investments where you can invest in five stocks. And you have to accept the fact that three of these stocks, your stock price is going to go to zero. But in the two that you make it, you hope to make hundred, 1,000%. So that's my second group. The third group are what I call my safety companies. These are companies that are big, that have lots of cash, no debt, and are going to be machines after this crisis is over because 
they will be able to control the market. So you can put Facebook, Microsoft, Apple. I mean, so I own Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft already. I added Google to the mix. So basically, I have four of the set. And my last group of companies are, the, I think, the interesting ones, which is we've talked about behavioral changes that are going to come out of this, that people are going to be more willing to do online meetings, online education. So I was looking at companies that are well positioned to take advantage of that behavioral shift. Now, the obvious name that comes to mind is uh, Zoom. The only problem is it's been so high profile that everybody's jumped out of the Zoom bandwagon. So it's a good company, but it's too high a price. So I suggested somebody like Chegg. You heard of Chegg? Chegg is an online homework, you know, less high profile. After I posted it, it's kind of taken off and it's now about 25%. But I'm saying you're looking for companies like that, which are under the radar, which people are not noticing. I've been surprised at how little Cisco has benefited from this. Because if you think about it, WebEx was around before Zoom was. It's used actually by more people than Zoom in terms of pure numbers. But somehow Cisco hasn't been able to benefit from it in terms of a higher price. So the fourth group of companies that you think will benefit but haven't been rewarded by the market yet. So this will require a little digging and also making your own assessments of what do you think the behavioral change is going to look like? For instance, you might argue that maybe as a result of this, more people will use better money or one of those online investing sites because they were with Morgan Stanley. And guess what? Morgan Stanley, in addition to taking 2% of your money every year, didn't protect you from this crash. He's saying, why the heck am I paying 2% of my money when I could have done this myself? So I think we each have to make a judgment. And I'm looking at, and no, so one of the things I'm doing while I'm sitting at home doing nothing is I'm looking out of my window saying, what are people doing differently? What part of this doing differently is going to stick? And once it sticks, what companies are best suited? So starting midweek last week, I've started looking in those four groups and I'm not going to go crazy. I would still preserve enough liquidity that I can pass the sleep test. But I think badly for those people who have no liquidity. Basically, they were fully invested in stocks three weeks ahead of their retirement date. My first response, the accrual one, was what were you thinking? What were you thinking not keeping enough liquidity when you're that close to retirement and you need the money? So people without liquidity have far fewer options. And my suggestion is don't force it. Don't say, look, Market's down. It must be a bargain. Let me go jump in and buy stocks. That's not the way investing works. You have to be comfortable with your choices or you're going to do something stupid and regret it afterwards. We each have to come to a moment of comfort. So I don't tell other people you should be buying stocks now. You know what? This is, you know, this looks cheap. I tell people once you're comfortable and you feel you're ready to make that next step, then start thinking about investing. But don't do crazy things like selling everything. So I'll get back in when the market starts to go up because you never know when the market is bought. 2009, when the market had bottomed in the U.S., people did not realize that it had bottom until two years later. For all you know, last Thursday might have been the bottom for this particular market. You never know except in the rearview mirror. So when people say, why shouldn't I just sell at the bottom and buy when it comes back? I said, if it was that easy, we'd all be rich. So in a sense, you have to kind of Invest whenever you feel ready and not say it's the market is bottom now. Is this the time to buy? Because you will never pull it. There were people who sold all their shares in 2008 because they were worried about the market and they never got back into the market. Because once you cash everything out, it's very difficult to go back in. Yeah, it's been interesting to observe a lot of opinions. And I think that's what's so hard right now is that there's such an array of opinions from 
I have friends at the top VCs in the Bay Area who sold everything to my friends who are shorting Chipotle, <laughs> my friends shorting gaming companies, other friends who are buying everything. I think it's really hard to make decisions, but I think your point is, is really well valid, is that figure out what you're comfortable with. And less is more. I mean, historically, the more activity there is on the part of the investor, the worse the returns are that investors have. So you tell me how much you trade. I'll tell you how bad your portfolio is going to look by the end of the year. It's one of the oldest rules in investing. Less is more. So if you're buying, don't buy 50 stocks, buy four. If you're selling, don't be buying and selling 15 times a day. I mean, I've seen day traders through their lives. I've never seen a wealthy day trader retire with the wealth intact. There's a point in time where that every day trader gets wealthy and there's 15 minutes later is completely bankrupt. It's like watching a gambler, right? You watch a gambler in a Vegas casino. There are points in the night where that gambler is doing really well and is really rich. But guess what? You gamble long enough, you're going to end up losing everything you gain. So I tell people, look, don't go out there and think you're smart in the market. Nobody's bigger than the market when you have a market this time. This is like, you know, it's a pricing market. Basically, it's going to have huge mood swings in the middle of the day. You're going to get completely whipsawed if you try to play those mood swings. So less is more, you know, I, you know, if, if you can, I would turn off that stock index on your uh, phone so you're not watching it every minute of every day because only bad things happen when you have more feedback. That's another interesting psychological finding is the more people can see what their stocks are doing, the worse the returns are on their portfolios. It's actually interesting because if you think about it, 50 years ago, if you bought stocks, and let's say you were an engineer, you had no idea what your stocks were doing during the course of the day, right? You went and did your job. And maybe if you were checking once a month, you got that brokerage savings. Oh, my God, my stocks are down 23%. Today, we get feedback constantly. I mean, and I think it's creating some really bad feedback loops where people are reacting emotionally. They're reacting. The keyword is reacting to whatever they get in the feedback. And in the process, they're hurting themselves as investors. So, you know, your specialty from my observations, a lot of it is pricing and valuations. And so last week on Thursday, I started buying Berkshire. I think based on just some discussions and then looking at their cash balance, how do you start making these observations of, you know, pricing when things are so irrational? There are two games you can play in the market. One is the pricing game, where you buy an Oprah higher price, or the investing game, where you actually try to value companies. So I think that if you really want to value a business, you've got to invest some time in understanding how to do valuation. I actually have two, I mean, I have an online valuation class, collection of 28 sessions of 20, about 15 minutes apiece. And it basically gives you everything you need to value a company because people are intimidated when they've never valued a company. They say, it's going to be so difficult. I need to know higher math. If you can add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and you can apply some common sense. Is this on YouTube? It's on YouTube. There's a playlist. There's also, my, I mean, I, you can give people my website. It's just the, my last name.com, themodern.com. All of my classes are online. My corporate finance class, which is a class of how to run a business, my valuation class. And I also have a class on investment philosophy, but I think it's, it makes sense for people to invest some time thinking about how would I value a company? What drives that? I think Berkshire Hathaway is actually a, a solid pick. Remember I talked about the four groups of companies? This is in the third group. Companies that have a lot of cash are no risk to in, in terms of going under. And essentially, you know they're going to come through this crisis more powerful than they were going in because they have more resources to bring to the game. So I think that Berkshire Hathaway fits them like Facebook, like like Amazon. It's not going to be a 10-bagger. 
it's not going to go up tenfold because it's too mature a company. It's an older company. So that's why I do the mix of companies because if all I have with the Berkshire Hathaways of the world, then I'm going to make money, but it's going to be kind of bounded because so much. When I describe it as being in chapter 33 of a 35 chapter book, <laughs> the story is pretty much known, right? There are going to be no surprises yet. You know? So I think that if you have no surprises, you're not going to get the real upside. Whereas Uber at 14, which is one of the shares that I bought last week, I think is an upside story because I think Uber is going to make it through this crisis. Why? Because I looked at the balance sheet. They were lucky enough and it's pure luck. They raised about $3 billion in cash and they had it as cash when this crisis started. They have enough cash to ride the crisis out. Let me ask you a question. A year from now, would you want to be using a ride-sharing service? Yeah, I need to get from point A to point B. It's not like ride-share. In fact, the taxi cab business might be devastated by this more than the ride-sharing business because those guys have to pay for the medallions whether people ride those cabs or not. So I bought Uber at 14. That is a potential 10-bagger because if everything lines up and Uber freight takes off and the economy comes back roaring, I mean, Uber is going to be $150 per share. It's good to get a mix of companies. You don't want to go all Ubers or all Berkshire Hathaway. So on your next investment, look for one of those fallen angels and think of some a service you use all the time. And you know the service is going to be run. I think it's silly, sell short and Chipotle. Why? Because restaurants are going to be hurt for the next three months? Of course, they're already priced in. The price already reflects it. Do you think there's going to be no Chipotle after this crisis is over? I think Chipotle is in a much better position to weather this crisis than a small restaurant chain like Applebee's. They're the largest restaurant chain in the country. So they have cash. They have the capacity to keep capital going. So Chipotle is going to make it through. In fact, they might get more powerful. That's why Starbucks and Chipotle might be much better bets than Applebee's or you know, Friendly's or whatever, TGI Friday or whatever the smaller restaurant chains are because they're going to be around and they're going to make it through the crisis. And in a strange way, they're going to come out of it more powerful and, more, and stronger relative to their competition than when they went in. Yeah, that's really interesting because my philosophy, I actually wrote down my investment thesis because I've only been focused on our company because my company has been our, my personal, you know, and for the people that work there, our cash cow. And the market, I always felt like I didn't have control. So I didn't want to distract myself. So I always try to just put in companies that I use and, and really just I don't want to worry about it. But I actually finally wrote out the thesis. And I try to just make sure that all the money was in companies where I don't really want to ever have to worry about them. And sleep touch. Yeah. I mean, I could make a model portfolio, but to what end, right? Because I teach a class in investment philosophies. And I tell people at the start, you know what, people go out and read books about Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and George Soros. Why? Because they want to be just like them. I said, the person you need to understand best before you invest is yourself. You need to know what makes you tick, what makes you happy, what makes you sad, what makes you anxious, what, because your investment philosophy has to fit you. So my entire class is not about this is the right philosophy. I actually give them a menu of, of philosophy. You can look at charts and fixed stocks. You can do, you can do everything. But I said, the philosophy that's right for you is the one that best matches who you are as a person. And I'd say the same thing for investing, which is don't let any expert tell you this is what you should be doing in this crisis because they're not you. They don't know what your circumstances in life are. They don't know whether you're a patient or an impatient person. They don't know you. You know yourself. And if you're willing to spend some minimal effort, I mean, it does require that you do a little bit of homework on what the choices are. 
I can create, in fact, a framework where I can say, you tell me who you are. Are you young or old? Are you, you know, are you patient or impatient? Do you get angry quickly? How does peer pressure work with you? Are you the kind of kid in school who the rest of the class would be doing something and you are completely okay? Because when you tell me who you are as a person, I can tell you what kind of philosophy probably is best for you. And then I can say, this is the portfolio that best matches it. So your biggest enemy in investing looks at you every morning when you look in the mirror because you are your biggest problem, right? Because when you do things which are stupid, it's not because, you know, a model led you to it. It's because there's some part of you that, and it's built in. It's the reason we've survived. Evolution has already put in the seeds for how we act. You can't change that. So try to go along with it. Mold a philosophy that's right for you, and you're less likely to do crazy things. One idea you gave me is that, just a thought, have you ever put out in a private way your choices of finance picks, your stock picks? Well, every time I buy something, it's on my blog. Every time I, you know, in fact, for the last 10 years. Really? Been, Where did you put the stocks that you put for like Uber and, and these guys? Well, I haven't written the Uber post yet. That's for next week. So, but the last Uber post was in September of 2019. The reason I don't make this, you know, stock picking, because otherwise people come for investment advice. And that's not what I want to do on my blog. I want to talk about thinking processes. See, I tell people, look, I'm going to tell you what I'm buying, but I'm not going to tell you to buy the same thing because I have a story and a value for Uber that led me to buy Uber. But I don't think your story for Uber should be the same as mine because you might have a very different perspective. So what I do is give people a platform of, you know, take your story and I'll give you a platform to convert your story into a number. I've given this to VC. I said, look, I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm just saying, look, I don't like the value you put on Casper. I don't think a mattress company that doesn't make its own mattresses, that doesn't have a differentiated product, <laughs> should really be worth $2 billion. You might think otherwise. So I'll give you my story and my valuation for cash, but you take it and make it your own. So my job is to actually provide people with a framework where they can take, because you have to take ownership of your investment decisions. Because otherwise, it's a cop-out, right? Because if people buy a stock because I liked it. They can say, well, the motor made the mistake. It's not my fault. He told me to buy the stock. That's not a healthy way of investing. I think it's always best to take control of your own destiny and your own stories. And the excuse of, hey, that's too complicated. I'm too busy with my life. This is not going to take you six hours a day. I'd say if you can give me three hours every month, you have enough time to manage your portfolio and do all the things you need to do to keep your portfolio looking healthy. Oh, I love it. And I, one of the things I'm going to recommend everyone to go check out, and I have a few more uh, questions, is that I loved your Tesla analysis. You've, you've done a few different things around, is the hype real? You know, because at 200, people thought it was expensive, and then at 400, and then at 800. And, you know, my stepfather, we talk every morning now about the markets, and he said to buy into Chevron. And so we talked about why that made sense. So we got into that. But uh, the thing that we were discussing is that he's like, I just believe that Musk will figure something out. What multiple you know, evaluation justifies that. And so I thought your analysis is that's something that everyone should be reading. In fact, I have a post on it's a do-it-yourself valuation of Tesla. If you get a chance, find it because basically lets people pick their own pathway. So it's from earlier this year. It's uh, from January, February of this year. It's a Tesla DIY. You should be able to find it. So type in Tesla DIY Demodern and there should be a post on. Oh, there it is. Cool. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Where I create a spreadsheet, play with it because you don't have to know anything about valuation. Basically, I ask you, what do you think Tesla is? A car company, a tech company, a tech car company, a car tech company. So basically, I let people pick their own story. And in the end, I, I actually show them what the value would be with their story. 
That's awesome. This is a bigger one. And, and you obviously have, I love your insights on all this stuff. And I, you know, I'm a, uh, there's like Buffett fans. I'm an Oswath fan. Like I'm part of the club now. I'm buying in. Whatever you have memberships, I'll be the first one. What do you think of the government's response to all this? And, and based on all of your knowledge and, and your personal opinion, how do you see from an economic standpoint this playing out? As I said, we've never had an experiment like this where the entire economy is shut down. So we know that lots of people are going to be out of jobs without an income for the next three months. I think you need to provide people, even if you believe the economy is going to come back fast, you need to provide people with enough money. Remember I said Boeing has to make it through the crisis for you to enjoy the nirvana that comes afterwards. I think that the rescue package you need is for people to make it through so they don't lose hope and they don't give up. So the reason it has to be so big is so many millions of people are going to find themselves. It's certainly a restaurant worker, you're a cook. I mean, there are so many service jobs in this country. In a sense, we've created an economy built around service jobs. And we're discovering that if you have an economy built around service jobs and the entire economy comes to a standstill, you're in trouble. And if you add to that the fact that you also have all these independent contractor-based businesses like Uber, right, where you don't get a salary, you get revenues based on whether you drive, you kind of exaggerated the effects of the shutdown. Now, is the money going to the places where it should? This is Congress we're talking about. The money is going to go to a dozen places where it really doesn't belong because the nature of putting something, they have trouble when they have six months to write a bill. And when you make that two weeks, you know there's going to be all kinds of crap in there that should not be in there. But that's the nature of legislation. It's not just in the U.S. Across the world, you're getting things thrown into rescue packages that have nothing to do with what the end game here is, which is we want to get people through this bad time. So when the economy recovers, it'll help them. It'll actually help the economy recover quicker if people feel that this is a timeout or a summer break or why they get paid for that period and then they can come back instead of digging themselves deeper into debt holes or borrowing money from people they should not be borrowing from. So I think that it's a necessary step. I Will it make the problem go away? As long as we're all shut down, the problems are going to still be there. So I think that that's going to be the next phase is, you know, the virus to kind of ease off and then maybe we can start to see the light. But the markets are going to bottom out well before physically we get all those evidences. So by the time you hear that New York has been eased up and everybody can come onto the street, that'll be about four or five months after the market has already set out that's going to happen. So one of the things about investing is investing is a proactive game. It's not a reactive game. And in this case, and that's why when people say, I'm going to wait for the crisis to end, I'm going to wait till the last coronavirus victim has been identified and made healthy. I say, if you're waiting for that, the time has already passed. In fact, in my valuation class, I tell people if they want to pick a company to value, and they say, what kind of company should I pick? I say, go where it's darkest. They say, what? What do you mean go where it's darkest? I say, find a nice Ukrainian mining company. And they say, there are no nice Ukrainian mining companies. And I say, exactly. I say, Ukrainian mining companies, are, you know, you've got uncertainty coming at you from every direction. So why would I want to value those companies? Because the essence of investing is you want to find market mistakes. And you know when markets make mistakes? is when everybody's confused and uncertain. So in a strange way, if you're an investor and you're thinking about finding bargains, your chances of finding them now are greater than they were eight weeks ago because people are panicked. I mean, yeah, I'm including the Blackstones, the State Streets, the Fidelity. They have, they're sheep. They're just running where everybody else is running. Everybody's buying Boeing. They're on. They're buying Boeing as well. 
this is the time for you to take a stand on here are the companies I would like to have in my portfolio. So if you always wanted Tesla in your portfolio, this is the time to do it, right? And the only thing I would caution about Tesla, and this is true for any company where a founder and the company are so wrapped up that you can't separate the two, is you're betting on a person as much as you are on a company with Tesla. So I tell people, and this is not a news story, so don't take it as a news story. What would happen tomorrow morning and you woke up and you read the first news story and it said Elon Musk goes into rehab? Would you be surprised by that story? I wouldn't be. I mean, I, th- I think the guy's a visionary, he's a genius, but I think he's also a person who seems to operate and no sleep at sometimes, does crazy things. So if I read that he was going to rehab, it would not surprise me if he had to go into rehab. But then if you think about a company that's bound up with a founder, anything that happens to the person also really hurts the company. And I think, I mean, that's the thing you've got to give credit to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos for. Bill Gates, very early in his Microsoft life, discovered that he could not make the company a company that was built around him. He consciously tried to make himself go into the background. I tell people in 2014, I asked um, a group of 500 people, I was valuing Amazon, and I said, how many people in this room know who the CEO of Amazon is? You know what? In 2014, most of the people in that room had no idea who the CEO of Amazon is. So, but we all know Jeff Bezos. You know when he became a household name is when he bought the Washington Post. For the bulk of Amazon's life, Jeff Bezos built the management team. And it's not like he didn't drive decisions, but he didn't make it about himself. I love Elon Musk as a visionary. I tell people, look, if Elon Musk were born in any other country other than the U.S., he would be in jail. He's a rule breaker, right? He's the, he's the kind of person that if he were born in Germany, he'd have ended up in jail because he's a rule breaker. I love the visionary aspect of what he does. I love the fact that he can think out of the box. I call Tesla my corporate teenager. When I bought Tesla in June of last year at 180, I said, I'm buying Tesla, but I'm buying it as my corporate teenager. Let me explain. You know what teenagers do, right? Every morning they wake up, they have lots of potential. The question they ask is, what can I do today to screw it all up? And sometimes Elon Musk strikes me as doing that. He's built this great company. And then he does something like take a diver in Thailand and say something stupid about it. And say, why are you doing this? So with Tesla, it's always going to be, why did he do that? Why is he tweeting that up? But you got to take the package. You get a visionary genius, but the guy is also a little juvenile at times. And the problem with buying Tesla is you're buying a person and you're going to buy the package. A few last things. So the government just printed $6 trillion. They're giving out $2 trillion. How they give it out is beyond me. How does that affect the economy? How does that really work? And what does that mean? Because I just, I don't really get it. In the long term, printing more money leads to the debasement of the currency, right? There's inflation. So normally when you see governments print money to make up a problem, you always worry about the currency losing value, that it becomes less valuable over time. But desperate times call for desperate measures. What's happened in the economy is it's all the shock. Shutting the economy down means that people have far less money to spend. So what the government is hoping is they can introduce $6 trillion, just like, I mean, it's much more than what they introduced in 2009. But remember, they introduced a couple of billion, trillion in 2009. Did not show up as inflation. Think of it like a factory with capacity, right? When the factory is running at full capacity, trying to make it produce more is going to create breakdowns and machines are going to break down. The factory is going to run into trouble. But let's say the factory is running at half of capacity. You can increase production by 40%. And 
you're able to pull it off. So think of the economy as essentially a factory that's been shut down. There's a lot of excess capacity. What they're trying to do is they're trying to introduce enough money to get the capacity going again, which is give the money to people. Maybe they'll spend more money. If they spend more money, that's going to keep the economy going at least until we can reopen the factory. So for the moment, they have this gap that's been created by the economy shutting down that the $6 trillion is going to come in. But they also have to be careful about when they stop, right? If they're not careful and they keep feeding the monster and people get used to receiving $600 a week for doing pretty much nothing, then five years from now, we're going to wake up with what happened in the 1970s. In the 1970s, when there was an oil crisis, so the way the, the central bank decided Federal Reserve decided to do it was they said, we'll pump more money to make up for the fact that people feel poorer because they're spending more on gas. But they didn't stop. So what happened by the end of the 70s, you had 10% inflation. So you got to remember when to take your foot off the pedal. And that's what you have to watch for is not the $6 trillion itself, but what the end games are on the $600 a week. Is it going to continue for three months, six months? Where? And that's why I want to read the full bill when it's passed, because we don't know yet, right? There's so much we don't know other than this kind of these little driblets of information you're getting. But you have to be careful. If you just keep pumping money, that's your Venezuela. You keep printing money, you have a, you know, where money becomes useless, like toilet paper. It's worth nothing. So you've got to remember when to stop and let the economy pick up the slack. I know you do a lot of analysis on crypto. I was buying in. I've been a long-term hold. I've never sold any since, I don't know, about four or five years now. What's your take on that? I've watched Bitcoin from the outside for a while. I, you know, I don't fall into either extreme. One extreme, of course, is this is all a, it's all a game. It's very worth nothing. It's like Beanie Babies, glorified, you know, <laughs> and it's going to all go to zero. And the other extreme is this is the future, that people are going to abandon their regular currencies and all use Bitcoin. Here's my problem with Bitcoin. I think that Bitcoin was born out of paranoia. Do you know when um, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote his paper that's the basis for Bitcoin? You know, when, when the paper was written, the actual origination, the idea that it gave, it was October of 2008. October of 2008 was one month into the crisis. The crisis very much like this one where people had lost faith. So he created Bitcoin essentially because people had lost faith in governments and banks. And he said, we're going to create a currency where we will trust no one. And you know how this manifests itself, right? When you do a Bitcoin transaction, there's no central bank. There's no regulatory authority. 2,000 miners have to get on computers to decide whether they have enough money to buy coffee. It's an incredibly inefficient way to run a currency, if you think about it. Can you imagine the whole world running on Bitcoin? And we won't have enough power to do every transaction. He put a limit on how many Bitcoin you, uh, could be created, 21 million. No healthy currency in history has had a fixed limit. Because what happens is the economies keep growing and you have a fixed number for a currency, you're going to have deflation. So you built a currency that the way you've structured it is never designed to be a healthy currency. I mean, there's a way you could create a cryptocurrency that's actually a healthy way of doing it. But you have to be willing to let it be transparent. You have to be willing to watch it. Because you can't build a currency where everything happens in secret, where there, there's no no central authority at all, because that creates very inefficient mechanisms. So my point about Bitcoin is, if it's a currency, how come more people aren't using it? Because every person who talks to me about Bitcoin, you know what they talk about? How much money they made on Bitcoin last year or two years. That's not the way we should be talking about currencies. Tell me how many coffees you bought last year with Bitcoin. Mm. How many transactions you did. 
And to me, the big failing of Bitcoin is the people who design Bitcoin have a vested interest in keeping it a speculative asset because that's where the excitement is. They don't want to do the stuff they need to do to make it a good currency. What shopkeeper is going to put his prices in Bitcoin when he has to change it 15 times in the course of one day? Right. So I'm not saying cryptocurrencies don't have a future, but the Bitcoin, I think, is designed in such a way that it can never be a viable big time currency. Of course, the other alternative is it's millennial gold, which is the other way I describe it. <laughs> gold has been around thousands of years. Bitcoin has been around 20 years. So if you're going to make it millennial gold, you better hope it holds its value because there's nothing holding it up there. Final question around this is that a lot of my audience and what I've been kind of going crazy on the past two weeks is really, you know, a lot of people have lost their jobs and I don't think they lost them. They know where they are. They're just not there anymore. A lot of people didn't have control over their careers. And so what do you see as the opportunities for people out of jobs or more specifically small business owners? So if someone today is saying, I want to create my own business, I want to make my own damn job, I want to be recession proof for the future. What opportunities are you seeing? Anything that you do, you got to ask yourself, what do I bring to the table that's different or unique, right? So, you know, I tell them even for high-powered bankers and consultants, I tell them to keep a pie chart of how much they used to do every day was mechanical. You know what I mean? You come in, you do the same thing over and over again. Now, I tell them, look, at 90% of what you do is mechanical. And most jobs, including very high-paying banking and consulting jobs, are incredibly mechanical. You pull up the same data sources, you put in the same spreadsheets, you create the same kind of PowerPoints. I said, look, 90% of what you do is mechanical. Remember, a machine is always going to be much better at mechanical stuff than you are. There are a lot of jobs out there that even before this crisis were slowly moving towards being essentially mechanized. Artificial intelligence computers, you know what? This is going to accelerate that process. And I think what you have to ask then is, what can I do that a machine can't do as easily? And every one of us has some skill set where you can point to say, I can bring that to the table. I'm really good at talking to clients, engaging what they're thinking, that no machine can do it. I'm going to build a business around what I think I can bring to a table that's unique. So I don't know what that would be for each of your listeners, but I think that's what we have to think about because we're all born with a gift. And I think if we can discover what that gift is and kind of build your next job, even if it's not a business of your own, around that gift, you're uh, less likely to be outsourced. This is epic. I'm a disciple. I'm a convert. <laughs> Thank you. I hope I get to have a burrito, California burrito with you one day and uh, take care. My favorite burrito of all time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much, Aswath. You are the man. Please check him out on Twitter and YouTube, Aswath Damodaran. That's A-S-W-A-T-H. D-A-M-O-D-A-R-A-N or his website, which is D-A-M-O-D-A-R-A-N dot com. His stuff is phenomenal. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go buy penny stocks together. And if you want to email me, podcast at okdoor.com. I don't even check it. Have a flavorful day. What book are you reading recently? <laughs>